If you could, turn your dials to Psalm 101. Moving forward through the book, uh, the theme of this psalm is equity of justice and sanctification. In this psalm, the psalmist vows to give to live a godly life, to pursue, pursue sanctification or holiness, and to do so while exposing and opposing evil and to administer justice. Like the psalmist, we too are a living body of Christ, as a living body of Christ, must be concerned about integrity and an equality of justice, and we must apply this psalm to our lives, this church, so that we can make an impact in this world. In God's kingdom, his scales of justice are scales of equity. They are well balanced in lo- with love and grace for his people and justice and punishment for others. And the division of this psalm is as the following. In verses 1 through 3a is the commitment to God's kingdom. Verses 3b through 5 is a holy hatred of evil. And verse 6 is love for God's people. Verse 7 is protecting our inner circle and separating from the world. I'm going to be going through the first seven verses rather quickly, but I'll be spending more time on verse 8 than all of the other seven verses together. And verse 8 is the commitment to justice while opposing the injustices that are occurring to the churches today. First, let us read the entire chapter. Verse 1. I will sing of mercy and judgment unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. And when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A forward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him I will cut off. Him that hath an high look and a proud heart will not I suffer. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. I will early destroy all the wicked of the land. And I may cut off all wicked doers from the city of the Lord. In verses 1 through 3a is the commitment to God's kingdom, the kingdom of God. Verse 1 again says, I will sing of mercy and judgment unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. Now this is a reference to God's judgments. God's judgment is similar to his salvation. It is not random or general, it is precise and specific. Christ's atonement and salvation was and is limited to a particular populace of people, God's elect. And so, his damnable judgment or wrath is also limited to a particular populace of people called the lost. And he has dominion over both the lost and the found. And so I ask, are you lost or are you found? Like the psalmist, we too should give praise to the Lord for both his mercies and his judgments. Moving on to verse 2. Told you we're going to move quick through the first seven. I will behave wisely. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. 
Oh, when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. That's a high calling. You say, well, who are we to tell God that we're going to walk with a perfect heart? Well, it's, it's an oath. It's a prayer. We're asking for God's help. That we are being perfected in him through sanctification. Though we are not perfect, we are being perfected. Though as sinners we all fall short, but by God's grace we will all strive to keep his commandments because his law is perfect and beautiful and flawless. Micah 6.8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to justly, to, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And Jesus said in John 14.15, If you love me, keep my commandments. And the next verse is important and practical for our daily application as we intentionally avoid intentional or unintentional sin. It is not a sin to be tempted by sin. Again, it is not a sin to be tempted by sin. But it is a sin to knowingly set that temptation before you and to give into that temptation or it is a sin to tempt others with our temptation or with our freedoms or liberties that they may not have that may be offensive to them, henceforth sin. In verse 3a, he said, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. Hard to do with television nowadays, isn't it? This I will set is the Hebrew word sheath, which means to apply, to appoint, array, bring, consider, to lay up, to put, or to set your mind to, or to take one's stand. Uh, we should take a stand for righteousness, but we must take a stand against lawlessness and sin. This wicked is the word belial, which means worthlessness, destruction, wickedness, evil, naughty, ungodly, or anything wicked. And so we too must keep wicked things from our eyes, nor set them before our eyes or our ears. Though the context of the following passage is idolatry, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 10, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you but such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but with the temptation also make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. God always leaves a way of escape from the temptation and even from sin in repentance so that we would not be consumed by that sin or temptation. He always leaves a way of escape or a door of escape for his people. Satan and his demons are alive and well and they are warring against Christians. We talked a little bit about this during our prayer service the other night. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with verse 6, Paul warned us, Now I, Paul, myself, in pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who is in presence and lonely among you, but being absent and bold towards you, but I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. 
Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. That's a long passage, but that is a powerful passage of what the Lord will do through you and to you and against the demons uh, that are warring against our souls and our minds. Moving forward next in verses 3b through verse 5 is a holy hatred of evil or of sin. Beginning with verse 3b. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A forward heart a forward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him I will cut off. Him that hath an high look and a proud heart will not I suffer. In verse 3b, he said, I hate the work of them that turn aside. I shall not cleave. They shall not cleave to me. This is a repudiation of sin, a repudiation of lawlessness and or of wicked deeds. God does not tolerate, celebrate, nor acquiesce to sin, nor to those whom have sinful lifestyles, and therefore, no should, nor should we. And on Judgment Day, God will not allow unregenerate, non-blood-washed sinners into heaven. That is why we are to give them the law to warn them of the sin, and then the gospel, which is the good news, the remedy for their sin problem. Moving on quickly into verse 4, he said, A forward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. If the psalmist or we seek to emulate God in Christ, then he or we will not be associated with sinful people. In verse 5, he says, Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath an high look and a proud heart will not I suffer. The psalmist actively opposed unrighteousness in church. So should we. That is one of our duties as a church, to oppose unrighteousness, uh, to be salt of the earth and light of the world. Moving on to verse 6, is love for God's people. This is the whole counsel of the word of God. I'm not preaching the whole counsel of the word of God. God's preaching the whole counsel of the word of God. We went from hate, now we're going to love. Verse 6, Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. Uh, we, we talked, the psalmist talked about whom we should not be associated now, whom we should be associated with. And the following passage is a popular love passage, but it's written to Christians. Again, only to Christians, not the non-saved world. And it says to Christians in 1 John chapter 4, beginning with verse 7, Behold, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God, was, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love. 
Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I cannot imagine a church where a pastor has to pound the pulpit telling his sheep to love one another. This is a church that is an automatic pilot that loves one another. And I'm so thankful for that. It's a small church. Uh, that probably has something to do with it. I think the bigger the church is, the bigger the problems you're going to have and the more division you're going to have in a large church. But our love does not wear a mask of hypocrisy. A true love is not a play actor. Romans 12.9 says, again, look at this, love and hate in one passage, Romans 12.9, love must be free of hypocrisy. Detest what is evil and cleave to what is good. A true love cleaves to what is good, but abhors what is evil, thus saith the word of God. And Jesus said in John 15, 12, This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. A Christian's love is not the same love as the lost world. Our love is not sensual nor worldly. It is a biblical love that loves with the truth. It does not, uh, that does not acquiesce to sin or tolerate lawlessness. Next, in verse 7, is protecting our inner circle and being separated from the world. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house, and he that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. Now we're talking about whom... He would not associate with again. If we love God and serve our King, King Jesus, then we need to disassociate ourselves from those whom lack integrity or from those that are worldly. Uh, my non-safe friends are not my friends. They're my mission field. They are my mission field. Sometimes I slip up and refer to them as friends, but they're really not my friends. They are my mission field. Again, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. We must be separate from the world in order to be properly, biblically sanctified. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.33, He warns, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And remember James 4 and 4 and 5 warned us, Oh, adulterers and adulteresses, in this adulterous generation, did you not know that friendship with the world is at enmity with God? That if you're a friend of this world system, you are an enemy of Christ. Thus says the Lord. And now moving on to the last verse. Now that's quick, but we're going to spend some time here. This is very important, church. And I think that things are going to get worse in America. Uh, recently, I just learned yesterday of another pastor being arrested in Canada. My heart breaks for these men that are standing up for Christ and for church and for their congregation. I'm learning of another pastor in Ontario, Canada, by the name of Pastor Jacob Reum, R-E-A-U-M-E, of Trinity Bible Chapel in Ontario, California. I watched an interview of this man, and wow, was that interview bold and courageous and solid. I can't wait to, 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 to maybe, maybe even do a, a video analysis of that interview in, in a podcast, possibly. But this next verse, verse 8, is the commitment to justice. 
while opposing injustices to our churches. We don't just want a commitment to justice or apologetics. We want also we also want to oppo- to oppose injustices to our churches and our Christians in a polemic way. The last verse I'm not going to be doing necessarily an exposition of it. I'm actually going to be gleaming justice from it because it talks about justice and then I'm going to talk about how we can apply this to our lives uh, as things perhaps might get worse in America. Verse 8. I will early destroy all the wicked of the land that I may cut off all wicked doers from the city of the Lord. Where do you live, church? I love the city of the Lord. My address is, my citizenship is in the kingdom of God. Amen? That's the address that I think of the most, because that's where I'm going to be spending our eternity. Amen? Brothers and sisters, this word destroys the Hebrew word samoth, which means to extirpate, to consume, to cut off, destroy, banish, annihilate, exterminate, or or to put an end to. God is a just God, and God is a God of justice. Micah 6, 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Isaiah thirty eighteen says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you, For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Are you waiting for him? Isaiah 1.17 says, Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And Isaiah 61.8 says, We're just scratching the surface of justice verses. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them the recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. But church, we cannot just love justice and tolerate or acquiesce. We cannot love justice and tolerate and acquiesce to sin or tyranny, because tyranny goes against a true justice for the church. They are opposing views, opposing principles. We cannot be a bond slave to Caesar, the state, or to tyrants while being a bond slave to Christ. As a biblical definition of a Christian is a bond slave or a doulos to Christ. When I'm seeing pastors being arrested in Canada while pastors for, 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 for not giving their church to Caesar and pastors here in Southern California are ready and willing and able already to raise their white flag of surrender if there's another spike in the virus or if the government says don't. It's a shame. I'm almost ashamed to be an American anymore. This Pastor Jacob Room has been fined $900,000 punitively. The state has fined his church $50 million. He's got beautiful property. A gorgeous building that their church meets in, and they'll probably lose it to the state, because who can afford to pay that fine? 
We're living in real end times, folks. And it is a shame and a sham that any pastor would ever, ever compromise and give to the state. This is a call to action and a call to repentance. I'm also preaching and speaking to the online community in this verse 7. I admit that. I don't think this church needs to hear this so much. But please understand, I'm also giving a message to people out on the internet that need to repent from their apathy. Therefore, the Lord's people must never give to Caesar what does not belong to Caesar. And the church, Christ's bride, is not Caesar's. She is Christ's, as one of our hymns just sang. Christ's bride was purchased with his blood, and it is his blood that is stained upon her dress. So how is it that so many local churches over these last 13 months willingly submitted to unconstitutional, anti-biblical tyrants, hence closing down their own churches, or allowing dictators to regulate or prohibit their church activities? Though every church should be judged on an individual uh, case-by-case basis, but the following are some general reasons why most local churches wrongfully surrender to Caesar during COVID. And no, it's not because I'm quote-unquote loving my neighbor, as Costi Hinn says, as he arrogantly criticizes Christians that refuse to close their doors. The first reason is cowardness also known as sin. It's a biblical word. And Jesus said that cowardly will be cast into the lake of fire. I'm not saying that if a church got cowardly and they caved in that they're not saved. I'm not saying they're not going to lose their salvation. But an evidence of salvation is a person that is not consistently known for cowardliness or being afraid of Caesar more than a fear of God. The next reason is a lack of moral fortitude. The next is a wrong understanding of Romans 13, or a lack of courage to actually demonstrate Romans 13. The next is ignorance of the doctrine of the lesser magistrates, or a lack of courage to demonstrate it. But let's talk more about the doctrine of lesser magistrate, one of the most controversial doctrines in the church today. And I truly believe that if we understood this doctrine better, and where it comes from and why it was created, then we would understand how to understand and apply Romans 13. So they go hand to hand. It is my desire to obey God and his word more than the confession that I'm going to be talking about. A definition of the doctrine of lesser magistrates is this, and I quote, The lesser magistrate doctrine declares that when the superior or higher civil authority makes unjust immoral laws or decrees, the lesser or lower ranking civil authority has both a right and duty to refuse obedience to that superior authority. If necessary, the lesser authorities even have the right and obligation to actively resist the superior authority. That's why the church must actively resist the highest court in this nation, Roe v. Wade. We must resist it in the mighty name of Jesus. That's why we have Christians that believe in this doctrine of lesser magistrate opposing that court's decision outside abortion mills today. 
for some church history on this doctrine, here's a more formal definition of this doctrine. The doctrine of the lesser magistrate is a unique Christian theory of resistance to authority which was first detailed in the Magdeburg Confession of 1550. This doctrine teaches that when a ruler has become an incorrigible tyrant within a very limited set of criteria, he has abdicated his claim to legitimacy. Consequently, those magistrates with lesser authority under him may defy and resist the illegitimate magistrate and his unjust laws for the sake of protecting others. For the embattled Protestant Reformation, the Magdeburg Confession became the embodiment of a theology of resistance, allowing not only for a right to resist in certain circumstances, but a duty. It is not just a right, it is a duty, according to this doctrine. And I believe that is also according to the scriptures, which is our highest authority. For a little background on Magdeburg, Magdeburg is a small town in Germany uh, at the beginning of the Reformation era, the Roman Catholic religion, notice I didn't call them church, the Roman Catholic religion, they were successful in getting their government and various officials to persecute the reformers and murdering reformers. Not only were the Roman Catholics persecuting Christians, Protestants, reformers, the authorities were too. And the Roman Catholics were loyal to the authorities and not to Christ. In 1550, nine Lutheran pastors came together authoring the Magdeburg Confession, which included the doctrine of lesser magistrates. This doctrine not only declared their right to resist tyranny, but it also agrees that it is their, it is their duty to do so. Those, these Christians that be held to the doctrine of the lesser magistrates are surely in the minority. Over the centuries, there has been many notable occurrences. I'm going to talk about just a few of those notable occurrences. This is just a few out of thousands. Fast forwarding all the way to the 20th century, uh, whether you agree with it or not, this is part of history. When the infamous pastor Diedrich Bonhoeffer conspired to assassinate Adolf Hitler to stop his genocide of killing and slaughtering millions of Jews and Christians. But someone snitched him off, and Hitler was captured, and Hitler assassinated Bonhoeffer. Pastor Bonhoeffer attempted that assassination because the lesser of magistrates would not go against their chief magistrate, Hitler. There were some lesser magistrates, including the police officers of that time, that had a duty to go against the lesser magistrate. Back to Romans 13. It seems the majority of pastors, if I seem to be a little bit angry, I apologize for that, but I have a righteous indignation in this area, and I really struggle with preaching this today. And I'm not going to lie to you, I almost stopped at verse 7, thinking we would just call it a quick sermon and go to Sunday school. But I think these things need to be said. And back to Romans 13. It seems a majority of pastors and elders these past 13 months in America, in California, and in Southern California, and ones that I know have wrongfully used Romans 13 against their own church. They've used Romans 13 against their own church rather than for the church. 
They've interpreted Romans 13 against their own church rather than use Romans 13 for the church. But the text clearly states that the governing authorities are called by God to reward good and to punish evil. That's the purpose of Romans 13, to reward good and to punish evil. And my friends, holding church services is not an evil deed, but it is a very good deed indeed. And so we must have the courage as a church. This church must have the courage to resist those authorities when biblically necessary. By the way, as we faithfully have over this since the beginning of COVID last year, by the grace of God, he's given this church courage to never miss a Lord's Day for the state. And if you think I'm rough on the edges, listen to John Knox. True it is, God has commanded kings to be obeyed. But true it is, that in things which they commit against his glory, he has commanded no obedience. John Calvin said this, For earthly princes lay aside their power when they rise up against God, and are unworthy to be reckoned, among the number of mankind, we ought rather to spit upon their heads than to obey them. We ought to spit on their heads rather than to obey them. Sadly, in the 21st century, Satan has been seemingly successful spiritually neutering a majority of pastors. Hence, they have become part of the unfaithful, castorated Christendom. And so, as I've said before, if the secular U.S. Marines' motto is Semper Fi, then how much more should Christ's bride be Semper Fi? Semper Fi. Semper Reformanda. Though they may be few, there are some Christian police officers willing to become the lesser magistrate, throwing away their careers and giving up their lives for the cause of Christ and for his church. Some of you are aware of my testimony of some things I've been involved in, going against the larger magistrate, even to the point of the federal government wanting to go against me as a police officer, where FBI agents uh, mocked my Christian faith and drugged me through different grand jury hearings, trying to indict my derriere. But because it's being audio and video recorded for the Internet, I'm not going to get into that. But there are many oath-keeping constitutional sheriffs today that I am so thankful, so thankful over this last year that have risen up and held press conferences while they're standing there on camera saying, we as the elected sheriffs of our counties in our state will invoke the doctrine of lesser magistrate going against the president, going against our governor, going against any of these draconian lockdown orders or stay-at-home orders. They are invoking the doctrine of lesser magistrates. Instead of their deputies becoming SS troops, their deputies are becoming constitutional deputies. Just last month, in Louisville, Kentucky, an on-duty uniformed police officer crossed the thin blue line. This is the kind of police corruption that I like. He crossed the thin blue line, joining the Christians outside an abortion mill They were out there pleading for the unborn that were about to be murdered. They were sharing the gospel, and he was called because of a 415 disturbing the peace call outside the abortion mill. He saw what was happening in uniform, in a police car. He got out and held their signs and joined their side. 
He's been suspended pending pending investigation. He'll lose his job, no doubt. But he invoked the doctrine of lesser magistrate, going against Roe v. Wade, going against his own police administrators. While on duty, Los Angeles police officer Chet Gallagher prolifically applied this doctrine. There's Christians outside the abortion mill getting ready to commit first-degree murder on the unborn baby in their mother's wombs. And this is Mother's Day. And Chet Gallagher is the police officer that shows up because the abortion mill called the police. And Chet Gallagher sees what happens. He's in uniform. He's wearing his badge, his gun, and he's in his police car and he gets out and he's compelled by God to invoke the doctrine of lesser magistrate. Chet Gallagher gets out of the police car. He stands behind the hinge of the door, grabs the microphone, turns up his PA, his public address system, and starts commanding all men everywhere to repent and commanding the abortion mill to stop slaughtering babies and joins the people that they call the police against. He was arrested by arriving police officers and he was terminated. Where are those men today? Recently I had a cup of coffee with a pastor in Riverside and I guarantee he will never have me over for coffee again at a coffee shop. And we discussed these things. And he's a pastor that's been a pastor a lot longer than I, decades. And so, sir, we had to obey our governor's laws. We had to close our church. They haven't even reopened their church a year later. I said, sir, don't you understand the doctrine of lesser magistrate? He says, no. I said, don't you understand who your sheriff is? He says, no. Do you know your sheriff's name? No. Your sheriff, who you should have voted for, is Sheriff Chad Bianco, the elected Riverside County Sheriff. And from the beginning of COVID, he said, I will not allow my deputies to enforce these draconian orders. And the pastor still shut his church down because he was ignorant of this doctrine and ignorant, or maybe he's lying to me, that his own sheriff would not have even enforced those laws. That's a great county to live in. Some pastors that wrongfully close their doors claim the excuse, but our county is stricter than yours. You don't understand, our county's tough. We're in the scriptures that it promised that Christianity was going to be easy or comfortable. He promised us troubles, didn't he? Well, who cares how strict your county is compared to ours or others? Because other churches in that same county that's so tough did not flinch in the face of adversity. They did not use the same lame excuses. And since when did geographical boundaries become our ecclesiastical restrictions? Gun laws, which I disagree with, change with boundaries. You can't even keep up with gun laws according to the states, the counties, and even the cities. It's ridiculous, but it should not ever change the way a church meets or the church congregates. That's sin to give into that lawlessness. It's cowardice and it's sin. God, His Word, and His church does not change 50 shades of gray depending on what county you live in or whom your governor or president is. 
1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Speaking of this word, steadfast, I won't even watch the White Horse Inn anymore because they host Costi Hinn on that show. I don't believe it's sin for me to say these things about Costi. It's the truth. He needs to repent. He's wearing a stupid Christian t-shirt that says steadfast, remain steadfast on his t-shirt while he's criticizing Christians and churches that are going against the flow. Be steadfast. If you're going to wear a t-shirt that says be steadfast, you need to be steadfast. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And some will ask, where's your grace? Where's my grace? My reply is the grace is at the cross. And how dare me abuse the grace of God. How dare me turn the grace of God into lasciviousness and drag Christ's dress through all of this mud. And since he died for us, we ought to be willing to die for him and count the cost, the scripture says. I'm not on a suicidal mission. I don't want anybody here to die. But our attitude ought to be that we're willing to die for the cause of Christ if it's necessary. And that pastor in Canada actually said that. He even mentioned, what what does your your wife and your little girl think about you? Or or do they think that you're causing trouble or whatever it was, or drawing attention to yourself? And he said, my daughter says, Daddy, I'm glad that you're a pastor because you're taking a stand. Therefore, I encourage this church and other churches listening to this sermon online to continue remaining steadfast in the faith and be willing and ready to invoke the doctrine of the lesser magistrates if necessary. I'm not talking about a worldly sinful rebellion. I'm not talking about an insurrection to the U.S. Capitol. That was sin and lawlessness. I'm talking about, and I'm not talking about political activism. I'm talking about a biblical application of Romans 13. And a biblical application of this doctrine of the lesser magistrates in defense of the faith and in defense of the Lord's church. That's what I'm talking about. The world's going to go to pot, folks. But we need to defend the church. We need to treat Christ's bride with respect. We don't share Christ's bride with Caesar. That's adultery. This church must continue its brave autonomy from the rest of those politically correct ecclesiastical church establishments. I've always gone against the establishment. Having said that, if we're to practice and administer this doctrine, then we must be very wise in doing so. We must be wise in doing so. We must have the mind of a serpent by the heart of a dove. Paul warned us in Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 8, For you were once in darkness, but now you are in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, 
finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Though we must be in God's will, but he doesn't need our help. Nor should we unknowingly try to thwart what might be the will of God. It can be difficult to discern these matters. Is this God's will? I don't want to try to stop God's will. It can be very difficult at times of when to invoke this doctrine and when not to. Because not every area is clear in black and white. But I will talk about some areas that are. So we must lean into the wise counsel of our more knowledgeable and more emboldened fearless brethren that have the courage to give you godly counsel and by God's grace, the elders of this church as well, that will help you persevere. Because the consequences can be devastating, Lord willing, if we're not doing this carefully. Yes, the Bible does tell us to submit to those governing authorities over us. Let me say that again. The Bible tells us to submit to the governing authorities over us. But there is a time to resist, biblically. We can biblically resist tyranny or the government when, listen to this, when the church, when they go against the church or when they go against our Christian religion or when they go against God's scriptures or when they ask us to violate our Christian conscience or when they command us to do something that the scriptures forbid or when they tell us to stop doing what the scriptures commands. What America needs is more courageous pastors in biblical churches that are loyal to Christ and not to Caesars. Churches that are loyal to Christ and his scriptures and not to the establishment. We need pastors that are not willing to allow civil authorities to prohibit our activities as we don't need their permission. Let me say that again. I got distracted by somebody walking by and you probably did too. Shame on me. We need pastors that are not willing to allow civil authorities to prohibit our activities as we don't need their permission. Church, I don't need the governors or the presidents or the county board of supervisors or the city council permission to have church. They have no business regulating our church at all. She belongs to Christ. And we don't share his bride with nobody. I don't share my bride with nobody. And we're not going to share Christ's bride that we're a member of with nobody but Christ's people. We need no more pastors that are not willing to kiss Caesar's boots while resisting the will of God. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 beginning with verse 27... Whatever I tell you in the dark, I'm glad I watched that video of that interview of that Canada, Canada 
pastor. God gave me more courage through that pastor. I thank God. Persecution's a beautiful thing, folks. I'm not complaining. We ought to rejoice. We ought to embrace it. Because I'm so encouraged by listening to that man's interview. But listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 10. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill your body. Don't fear those who can kill you. But fear those who can kill your soul. But rather, fear fear him. Fear God who is able to destroy both your soul and your body in hell. And not only two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are more valuable than many sparrows. We do not have to fear man or fear Caesar or fear the state because we serve a God that cares, that knows every bird that falls from the nest and knows every hair on our head. Proverbs 29:25 says, The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Jesus said in Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, listen to this, Did 98% of the churches in America do this? No. No. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does it mean to take up our cross? That's our execution chair. That's our lethal injection IV drip. That's our death chamber that we ought to be willing to take up our chair and be put to death that we ought to be ready to take up his cross and follow Jesus for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul or what shall a man give in return for his soul lastly I would rather have five Christian men who do not flinch in the face of adversity than 500 who would allow the government to prohibit their church from regular activities. Lord, bring us up more of those men. Father, thank you again for your scriptures, for your psalms. Thank you, Lord God, for the testimony of Pastor Jacob. I forget his last name in in Canada, Lord. We pray for his family. We pray for his church. We pray for his wife. We pray for his little daughter. We pray, God, that they would have victory in you, Lord God. We pray that you would use this sermon to provoke and cause other pastors to repent from their apathy that we would fear you, Lord God, and not man. We pray, God, that you would grow us in sanctification. Lord, we know that you are holy, so we just want to glorify you, Father, and exalt your Son, Christ, who is the true head of this church, not the state, not Caesar. Christ died for this church, and Christ alone. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would take this word and manifest it through our bodies, that that through your means of grace and all of your each and every gift of your Holy Spirit, that you would use us mightily for your glory. Send this church out as soldiers to preach and teach and share your word of God. 
Lord, I help that we would be discipled to grow in, in your grace and knowledge, that we would equip each other, that we would be in, in, in good fellowship and discipleship with others. Lord, we pray for your universal church, that you would strengthen them, Lord. Lord, take heed lest I fall only by the grace of God that you have given me and others here courage and confidence. And so, Lord, we, we ask that you would do the same with others that are lacking in this area, Lord God. We ask that we would do that humbly, and we ask that you would do it in the name of Jesus. Amen.